all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. This is what Pascal, the French philosopher and mathematician and theologian said. All of man's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. All right, we'll get to that in a moment. We're not in a room alone now, and we're not all that quiet. Um, so uh, it's a real joy to be back here again. Um, as, as was mentioned, I am a pastor over in New Haven, Connecticut, and I've been here a few, more, few, few times before. And I always um, just go home refreshed, um, not just sort of like emotionally and even physically, but, but spiritually. And um, there's all sorts of ways God can refresh a person emotionally and physically. But the only way he can refresh a person's spirit, a person's soul, is by his own presence. And so I always leave here refreshed in the presence of the Lord. My own heart is filled with Christ's presence whenever I've been here. And um, even to this point in the worship service, it's the same thing. It's just such a beautiful service that the Lord crafts here for you all. So what a joy to be back. Um, and and it, it is fun to be able to fill in for Mark every now and then, especially to you know, give him a chance, as, as was mentioned, to celebrate his anniversary. Uh, with his, his wonderful wife and just to deepen their bond with each other. So I'm really glad to get over here this morning. Um, I usually have come over the day before and um, because there's no ferry early enough in the morning to get here in time. Um, so I spend the night at, at Mark's house, and, um, but I, I didn't want to bother them this weekend. But also there was a Harvard-Yale soccer game in two, two blocks away from my house because I, I live on Yale Avenue and I, I needed to go to that. So... Um, so, got up, got up at 5 a.m. this morning, and here I am. Um, uh, the, um, the, the travels that, that I've done, though, are a real part of the joy of my work. Um, and Mark said it'd be fine. He wanted me to just give you all an update on the, the missions work that we're doing together, our church planting work. Um, so a very brief update before we circle back to the sermon, the, the text itself. Um, but as you might know, Mark has been part of our what's called Mission Anabino Church Planting Network. And that's named after the Greek word Anabino for the ascension of Christ. And so Mark comes over, takes the ferry the other way once a month and meets with us and the fellow church planters as we pray together and strategize together, but really it's, it's, it's being theologically undergirded by, by we theologize together. We, we have prayer time and then we get, get deep into the scriptures and we don't just talk about the pragmatics, which are important about how to plant the church, like what sort of building should we look for, what time should the service be. We talk about the theology undergirding it all. And Mark's presence has been very, very helpful. And one final comment of just about Mark is he is a, he's a rare friend. And I know you all know this, the gift that he is as a pastor to you all here. Um, he has that quality. Hopefully all pastors have this. But speaking as a pastor, I'm not so sure I've always had this. But the, you know, there, are those, there are some that will speak truth with no love. There are others that will just let you be and never speak truth. And Mark is, is this excellent, um, Christ-filled pastor. And I know 
um, I'm imagining his relationship with you has been somewhat like it has been with me, a real friendship, but also speaking truth to bring correction when needed. And um, uh, so without going into much, too much detail, but there was some real uh, course correction that he noticed that I needed in my life, an area of, of indifference and an area of, uh, of lack of, of care that was manifesting itself and people not being as cared for as they needed to be. And he spoke some really encouraging and corrective words for me. And um, so I'm thankful for his friendship. And I know, I, I just feel his, I, I feel that it must be true that that's the, the way in which the Lord continues to use him here as a true pastor, a shepherd for your souls, to just guide you and encourage you and, and you know, re-correct you, reorient you every now and then as we all need. Um, well, keep praying for our church planting work. We have begun a a church in the, the inner city of New Haven, and, and the, the pastor there had been commuting to the church from Bridgeport, but he's now moved into the neighborhood, and he has a, a breakfast every Saturday morning, and all the, so many neighbors come by, and, and he just feeds the neighbors on the sidewalk there. It's, it's probably the most crime-ridden and drug-infested a neighborhood in in uh, New Haven, one of the one of them, one of the worst in Connecticut, and he's right there, in in the hill, um, ministering. So pray for his church to to find its footing and to grow and to thrive. Our church in Fairfield is doing so well. The church in Wallingford has just gotten started with a new worship with its first worship services this year, and our church in Milford, Connecticut, is is has very close to beginning its public worship services too. It's in the early stages of development. Um, and one particular, there's so many things to, to update you about, but I won't do that now. If, if um, you'll promise to at least consider this invitation, the, just consider it. I don't, I don't require you to sign on to the deadline, but consider, you'll see the e- email contact information, consider just emailing me if you would like to be to get my regular monthly newsletters with updates on the new churches that we're helping to get started in the first PCA church in North Dakota, a church in Nova Scotia, a church in Arizona, churches in um, Florida contacting us. And then also one final prayer request. Um, we were this close, humanly speaking, this close to being able to persuade this fine young pastor and his wife to move to the, to the new London area to start a church. And at the, at the last hour, they said they just don't think they can do it. They can't leave behind their elderly parents and move all the way up here. So we are really looking for a church planter for the new London area. And uh, if that comes together, I might start, in, start taking the ferry over here from new London instead of from Bridgeport. But uh, so pray for us, to, for the Lord to provide a new pastor for the New London area that's just so desperately needed there. Less than 3% of folks in that area go to any gospel-believing church. So pray for us to find a church planter for New London, Connecticut, which is where my parents met, actually. So I have a special desire for that to happen. All right, thank you. Thanks for listening to all that stuff that's just about my sense of what God is doing. But now let's circle into the, the text itself so that it's more than just like wishful thinking and text and sense of maybe God is at work here. Pray for all this. Now we get to the text itself. We know God is present in this text. So let me read for us 
this psalm, Psalm 55. And you might remember, well, I think you'd remember, but just a few moments ago, um, that summary that Pascal gave. (laughs) All of humanity's problems stem from our inability to sit quietly in a room by ourselves. One of the most brilliant moments in the disciples' lives was when they came to Jesus and they said, Lord, teach us to pray. So that's our prayer this morning. And Psalm 55 provides so much of the answer. So let's read this together. This is Psalm 55. To the choir master, with stringed instruments, a mascal of David. Mascal is a musical term of some sort. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint and I moan because of the noise of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked. For they drop trouble upon me, and in anger they bear a grudge against me. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror overwhelms me. And I say, Oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. Selah. I would hurry to find a shelter from the raging wind and tempest. Destroy, O Lord, divide their tongues, for I see violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around it on its walls, and iniquity and trouble are within it. Ruin is in its midst. Oppression and fraud do not depart from its marketplace. For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me. Then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. Let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol alive. For evil is in their dwelling place and in their heart. But I call to God. And the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. He redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage, for many are arrayed against me. God will give ear and humble them, he who is enthroned from of old. Selah. Because they do not change and they do not fear God. My companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. But you, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days, but I will trust in you. Please pray with me. Lord, we've just heard this prayer penned thousands of years ago, and we're asking you, Lord, teach us to pray. Thank you for these words, this example, this invitation that you give us this day. 
So open our hearts and our minds to receive these blessings, these lessons that you have for us of how to speak with you, how to pray. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. What is prayer? How would you define that? There's this sort of idea um, that on the, on the near side of complexity, on the near side of complexity is uh, superficiality and being simplistic. But on the far side of complexity is a beautiful simplicity. And one of my um, most um, beloved professors who got degrees from both Harvard and Yale, actually, come to think of it. (laughs) Um, He was an Old Testament professor. He answered that question, what is prayer? And I think what he did is he just took all this complexity and he made it beautifully simple. And he said, prayer has three elements. Prayer is the true self using true words to speak to the true God. And he talked about how for some... Prayer comes easier if you're in a church sanctuary than if you're outside a sanctuary. It comes easier if you're with people than if you're by yourself or for other people, if you're by yourself and not with people. And he says there's all these other aspects of prayer that if you don't have them, you can still pray. But if you don't have your true self in the mix, you're not praying. (laughs) If you're just playing a charade with yourself... If you're, if you're just sort of lying to yourself and going through the motions. For me, my, people have asked, like, when I became a Christian. And I, was, I, I came to Christ sometime during my first semester of college. And I'm not exactly sure when. But the way I answer that is I, I think, you know, I went away to college. And I, I'm not sure I ever really prayed from my true self up before college. And I would pray uh, the prayers I was taught by my parents. I would pray the prayers I was taught by the church. I would pray the way we've prayed this morning. If a prayer was in the bulletin, I would pray it. But I can't remember ever praying for anything from my own work with my own words. But when I came home from college for Thanksgiving break that first semester, I had learned how to pray. Somehow in the mix... I, just, I was a person that would use, bring my true self and use true words and pray to the true God. So we find all of that here in Psalm 55. The true self using true words and coming to the true God. And we have in this psalm a psalm of lament, a psalm of turmoil and despair. We have in this psalm this remarkable example of prayer, but it's not just an example of prayer, it's also an invitation to pray. We see that in the sense in which it's sort of a, an argument from the, the, the greater to the lesser, because as you read the psalm, you see what great need the psalmist was in. The city was being occupied by an enemy army, as it were. His own friends are betraying him. You see him groaning and moaning and in terror. And so he, in his great need, 
great inner turmoil, he's praying. And so if God welcomes us to come to him with great needs, then arguing from the greater to the lesser, how much more does he welcome us to come to him with any sort of need? If we are to come to God and even all of this to spare, then we can come to him with anything and everything. But it's also an invitation, if you think about it, kind of like reverse, not just an argument from the greater to the lesser. Great need here means that you can bring all needs to God. But also it's an argument from the lesser to the greater in a different respect. Because he is less presentable in his soul than most of us think um, a, a soul needs to be in a presentable condition before you come to God. So just, I mean, just for a moment, just think, um, not to um, go through every split second of your morning to this point, but from the moment you woke until getting here to the church building, what, how, how many different things did you do to make yourself look presentable? We all probably did something at least, and not that that's required, but it's, you know, it's essentially, it's for just feeling healthy about yourself, it's being polite to others. There's reasons, there's, we need to do that just for manners, to make ourselves presentable. Um, is that what God requires of us? Does God require us to make our souls presentable? in the same way in which we'd want to make our physical appearance somewhat presentable. Does God require that we make our souls presentable before we can approach him to clean ourselves up, to get ourselves in the right frame of mind, the right mood, be positive and full of faith, and then I can approach him. But I shouldn't dare until I make myself presentable. Well, if that were the answer, if that's true, that God requires you to make your soul presentable before you present yourself to him, then you all should have an emergency congregational meeting and change the name of your church. Get the word grace out of its title. Grace means that we come and present ourselves to God with nothing. With nothing. You don't need to brush your hair or brush your teeth or anything. Your soul doesn't have to be made more fit. This guy, this psalmist, is in turmoil. He's moaning. He is he's overwhelmed with horror. And so, this psalm, Psalm 55, is this remarkable example of prayer, but it's also an invitation to pray. From arguing both from the greater to the lesser, this great need, therefore, all of our needs we can pray we can bring to the Lord, and from the lesser to the greater. He's unprepared to present himself to God, and yet he does. How much more can we present our souls to God at any moment? And so we have this remarkable example and invitation to prayer. And one other thing, just, just one other introductory comment, and I did, you know, I did this on purpose. I think most, Mark would do this as well, and most pastors would do this, that when I read Psalm 55 for you, I also read the introduction to it, which is in the original Hebrew. It's part of the scriptures that are in italics in most of our English Bibles, these sort of introductory words that say, to the choir master, 
with stringed instruments, a maskil of David. We don't know what maskil means, some sort of musical term probably, but we do know what the other parts of it mean. This is a psalm written to the choir master with stringed instruments. In other words, this was meant to be part of corporate worship. This is not written as, okay, in my turmoil, you know, I, I'm, I'm so thankful. I used to think that in my turmoil, I can't even go to God until I make myself feel happy or something. And now I know I can go to God in turmoil. And so I, I journal, and I journal through my turmoil and despair, but I'm going to keep it in a prayer private journal. Now, I think maybe these days, that's a judgment call, of course. Feel we should probably, but that's not what's happening here with this psalmist. He takes this private turmoil and he says, this is going to be the prayer of the church. This is going to be the prayer that we pray corporately together. I'm not preparing some happy, happy prayer. And those are beautiful too. Half the psalms are just prayers of adoration, full of joy and praise. But half the psalms are these prayers of despair and lament. And they are to be prayed publicly and corporately. Do you see the gift that God gives to us by giving us these words that we can actually open up our souls in company with our brothers and sisters and say these things out loud to God? What a gift that is. What psychological health that gives to us to, us, to be able to be honest with each other and before the Lord with these prayers of lament in the scriptures. So let's move through this psalm. It's a pretty long psalm, and we'll try to do it as concisely and clearly as possible. Let's move through it with these three big sections. The first section, let's just take a look at this condition of turmoil and despair. Then the second section, we'll take a look at the deeper processing that comes when we're in prayer. And then finally, we will wrap up by just seek, by answering together the core question of the psalm, which is the title of the sermon, Oh, would you give me the wings of a dove? So the third section this morning will try to answer that question the way the psalm answers that question. So first, what is the condition of turmoil and despair that we see here, that we're invited into? Well, he, does, he jumps right in. Give ear to my prayer, O God. Hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me, answer me. I'm restless in my complaint. I moan. Verse 4, my heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror overwhelms me. Many of us, maybe all of us, have known fear and trembling moments in our lives, maybe even whole seasons in our lives, where that's not just a metaphor, but where we noticed our bodies were physically reacting to fear, were trembling. Um, a, I won't tell horror stories. There, there are those in my life and in our experiences. <laughs> To illustrate this, I'll, I'll tell a relatively silly story to illustrate it. 
The one time, one time I went canoeing with my wife in the Everglades of Florida, and I was in the front of the canoe, and she was in the back of the canoe, and we, no, 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 she was in the middle of the canoe. It was my brother-in-law who was in the back of the canoe, so he's the one I blame. We saw this big alligator sunning itself on the bank, and my brother-in-law started steering the canoe towards it, and I was in the front of the canoe, and we're getting closer and closer. I'm about as close to this huge alligator as to the pew right there, and I just noticed like I was physically shaking. That's just a, a metaphor most often, you know, shaking with fear. I was not, it was no metaphor. I was shaking with fear. That's what happens. That's what happens in, in, in seasons of turmoil and fear, and the psalmist gives words to it. And what we're invited to do in those moments is pray to God. God doesn't say, calm down, calm down, and then you can talk to me. Get, get, a, hold on your, get a hold of yourself, and then I'll listen to you. He says, pray to me right now in the shaking, this feelings of shaking. One of my other professors, Diane Langberg, a, a marvelous Christian um, psychologist and counselor, um, she has counseled those in, in, in grief and in post-traumatic stress, and she was one of the first ones on the scene um, of Ground Zero when 9-11 happened and, and has counseled um, literally hundreds of survivors. And um, she makes the point that she, she thinks it's un, very unfortunate that post-traumatic stress disorder has been called post-traumatic stress disorder. She suggests it should be called post-traumatic stress syndrome. That there's nothing disorderly when you come face to face with real horror and the fear of death for you to moan and groan and shake and tremble. She says, that's a real syndrome. We will come alongside each other in that moment. We're not going to disregard it. But there's nothing disorderly about that. What's disorderly is the world, a world where such trauma exists. That was disorderly, but the soul is not disordered when the soul responds to that sort of trauma. And the psalmist here is responding not just to personal trauma, but to the trauma he sees in his culture and his society. The city is overwhelmed with oppressors, and the poor are being ground underfoot. And his, the, the, the orderly response of the soul in all of that is moaning and grief. That's not a disorder. Well, so we see this condition of turmoil and despair. And it leads the psalmist then to cry out, Oh, for the wings of a dove. For the wings of a dove. This will date me, um, maybe, and this, tr- this tiny little commercial from my childhood or whatever. Some of you might remember it, but um, do you remember a, a commercials on TV for um, Calgon, which was like a bath cleanse? What, what, like, anyway, the, the woman would say, Calgon, take me away. It'd be like the first scene of the commercial. She's in the kitchen with all this, like, you know, pots over, over, boiling over, and then she'd just say, Calgon, take me away. And the next scene is her in the, in the bubble bath, 
with Calgon bubble bath or whatever that was. Calgon, take me away. And that's, that's a great ad campaign, and, and, and it's entirely healthy and normal to just in these, oh, get me out of the traffic, Calgon, you know, whatever. This, though, of course, is much deeper than that. This is this call for all, really all of creation to be made right. This is this deep soul's existential plea. He goes big here, the psalmist does. He doesn't just ask for a bubble bath. He asks for all of the created order to be made right and for his place in the created order to be made right. Take me to the place where all is right with the created order around me. The condition of turmoil and despair. And that leads to, in that condition, to desperate pleas. Look at the plea that he makes in verse 9. Destroy, O Lord, divide their tongues. Destroy, O Lord, divide their tongues. And then he repeats it in verse 15. Let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol alive. And then he repeats it in verse 19. God will give ear and humble them. Here is in this condition of turmoil and despair. His soul is not disordered. In fact, he brings his requests, his desperate pleas to God. And what he's pleading for here is for justice. Two points, though, before we take this in the wrong direction. Point number one. We said earlier that there is, there is no preparation required for you to make your soul presentable before you can come to God. You don't have to clean yourself up. However... Not to contradict that in any way, but actually to undergird it and to make the point. There actually is one fundamental condition. That if this one and only one condition is not in place, there is no relationship with God. There is no living relationship and there is no real prayer going on. And what would you think that condition is? And again, just going back to the name of your church grace that's the name of the church with respect to to what God gives but the soul in order for the soul to receive grace the soul does need to have a heart plea for mercy that's how the psalm begins did you catch that the very first verse before he even jumps in to describing his turmoil and despair, and certainly before he asks for justice to come down upon the oppressors, he begins by saying, this whole thing, O Lord, is a plea for mercy. As C.S. Lewis puts it, the doors of hell are locked from the inside. As Psalm 55 puts it there in verse 19, They do not change. They do not fear God. God pouring out his grace as an offer and the heart that says, 
I don't need grace. You owe me. You owe me. That heart is, number one, playing a big charade with his own soul, so he's not being his true self, is misunderstanding the very nature of God himself, and so not praying to the true God, and not using real words that communicate reality. And so, notice, that's the first thing we say. This, he is now out of his turmoil and despair. He's going to ask for God to bring justice upon the oppressors. But he does not do so from a, from a condition of moral superiority. He does so from the condi- condition of, I am a recipient of mercy, O oh God. I need more of your mercy. And the particular mercy I'm asking for now is for you to bring justice to the oppression I see happening around me, to me and to those I love. And I do not deserve it, but I ask for it. So that's the first point, that this prayer for justice is not from a position of moral superiority. It's from a position of one who knows that they need mercy. But secondly, the prayer is not a vigilante justice sort of prayer. Notice the things that are at the heart of the psalmist's concerns are not personal affronts. They're not, I was insulted, and so get that guy. God, pay back the person that made my life harder or, or just insulted me. These aren't personal affronts that are in play here. What's in play here is societal, cultural injustice, the poor being oppressed, being defrauded, And so this is not a vigilante justice, nor is it saying, nowhere does he say, Lord, give me the strength to be the one to kill them. He is by definition turning the whole thing over to God. And that is prayer. That's prayer. It's not really prayer to say, God, here's my problem. And I'm totally going to take care of it myself. I just thought I'd let you know. (laughs) Prayer is, here's my real problem. Lord, I give it to you. Will you take care of it? And then, of course, oftentimes we are. He empowers us to be the answer to my prayer. Like, Lord, my wife needs help, you know, bringing loving care to our children. Just do that. No, like he'll say to me, Yes, I'll do that by empowering you to be a true father to your children. So it's not a, it's not a, the giving over of all this to the Lord is not a giving over and then walking away. It's a giving over and then watching what he's going to do. So that's the first thing we see in this psalm, this condition of turmoil and despair. This, it leads to a longing for all of the created order to be made right and for us to find our place in that created order, like a dove being flying away to a peaceful place. And it leads to a, a desperate plea to the Lord for justice. But then it takes us to the second part of the psalm and the second part of our sermon is when we enter into prayer, this deeper processing comes in prayer. So let me ask you a question. Um, 
think of who you think of yourself 10, let's say 20 years ago. Um, that's uh, before you were alive, Adrian, by the way. So, so sorry. So for you 10 years ago, but for the rest of us, like tw- 20 years ago, maybe. Um, do you know yourself better now than you knew yourself then? Another question. Yourself 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Do you know the living God better now than you knew him then? I'm not sure what the answer is for all of us, but what we do know is that God is revealing himself and wanting the answer to be yes for all of us. That when we enter into prayer, we're actually getting to know God better. His character is revealed more and more. And we're getting to know ourselves better. And we're getting to know the world around us more clearly. Prayer, again, is not a Calgon, take me away, let me just go in a bubble bath and forget everything. Prayer is this place of Sabbath rest, to be sure, we find refuge in the Lord, but it's a school. It's a wonderful, cheerful school where we're being taught deeper things about the nature of God, the nature of ourselves, and the nature of the words we're supposed to use. And we see that happening in this psalm in a number of ways. His awareness of the nature of God is elevated. His awareness of his own turmoil is made more clear to himself, but also he becomes more aware of what's happening around him, the nature of life in this present age. And notice that he He comes to grips with something in verse 12. All this turmoil. And he sees the turmoil in the city and it's just just causing him to moan and groan. But then in prayer he realizes, but there's something deeper going on. And the deeper thing, as I sort of connect with what's going on in my soul right now, I realize here's the thing that's really getting to me. Here's the thing. This other stuff is getting to me, to be sure. But here's the thing at at the core that's really getting to me. is that it's not an enemy that's turned on me. It's my own friend. My own fellow worshiper, as it were. And he's realizing that the pain of an enemy is a certain sort of pain, but the pain of a friend, the betrayal of a friend, is far more painful. That's the nature of this reality. So there's this deeper processing of life that comes when we enter into true prayer. And in this deeper processing, we are led to both a rest and a resolve. This deeper processing leads us to the place where, like the psalmist, he can simply say, verse 22, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. There's this claiming of the promises there. There's this rest that comes. But then there's also this resolve. So it's not the sort of rest, again, like the being in a bubble bath. I'm just, I'm just relaxed. I've just turned this over to the Lord now, and now I'm just going to go to sleep. No, he turns it over to the Lord, but he stays awake and alert. But he doesn't go the other um, fall in the ditch on the other side by then, okay, I'm alert. In fact, I'm so alert, I'm like jittery and anxious and nervous. He's got a restful wakefulness. He doesn't fall asleep, but he's, he's awake. 
But his wakefulness is not a jittery panic. He remembers that God is the judge, verse 23. God is the one that will take care of all injustice, of all evil. But I, as for me and my soul, the very last words of the psalm, I will trust in you. So, that leads us to the last bit. How does God then answer our plea? The heart of the prayer in this psalm is just, Lord, make all things right. Give me the wings of a dove. This world as it is is not the way you intended. I want to fly away to the world made right. So that's the prayer request. I think we've all voiced that prayer in different ways. And hopefully we're now voicing, we're taking that sort of natural instinct, the Calgon take me away instinct, and we're actually making it deeper and more real. And we're saying, Lord, make things right. Take me to that place where all things are right. So then how does God answer that prayer? Well, of course, like all scripture, we interpret any particular text in light of the overall story of scripture, the overall art arc of the narrative from Genesis to Revelation. And so how does God answer that prayer? He answers it, yes. He answers it, no. And he answers it, yes. Okay, what do I mean? He answers it, yes. First of all, he says, whenever one of my children asks for all things to be made right, I tell him I tell her, in Jesus Christ, yes and amen. Jesus says in Revelation 21, I am making all things new. I will, I am preparing a place for you. The answer is yes, but not yet. The answer is yes, but not yet. That reminds us of our hope of heaven. We know, of course, that life is not just this cyclical nonsense where when our last day comes, we close our eyes and we open them up and we're back to being a little baby again. And we have to start all over. And then that happens again and again and again. No, no, we know life is not like that. We know that there is this great place being prepared for us, the new heavens and the new earth. But it's not yet. So that's the first way he answers it. Yes, but not yet. And so then that means, let's just be honest, it also means no. (laughs) There's a way in which he certainly answers that prayer. No. I am not yet taking you out of this broken world. In fact, I'm doing the exact opposite. I'm giving you the strength and specifically calling you into this world. You are necessary and needed here. This is what God does for us every time we gather in corporate worship. He empowers us to be his people, his desperately needed people in this world, in this place. It's such a delight to come to the Hamptons whenever I get to come, and I've come pretty much all four seasons of the year by now, and I've just just loved it every time. And I think I've said this before, but we'll say it again. The Hamptons, like other places, but the Hamptons is this remarkable place where the presence of God in all his creator's glory and the giving out of common grace 
is present here. And it's present here all four seasons of the year, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. God can be found anywhere on, on Long Island, anywhere in Montauk, in his common grace and as creator. But where can he be found as savior and in his saving grace? And the answer is only in the church. Only when the church gathers, whether in twos or threes or in corporate worship, only in the church can God's saving grace be found. That's why God says, no, I'm not taking you away yet. You're here. You are desperately needed here in the Hamptons. You are the saving presence of Christ in a way that no other place around here is except for other good churches. And in the great words of Jim Elliott, your life is immortal and your congregation's life is immortal until your work here is done. And so God says, we say, give us the wings of a dove, make all things right. And he says, yes, I will, but not yet. So that also means, no, I'm not going to do it right now because I'm using you. I'm not going to take you away. I'm going to use you where everyone else needs to hear the saving presence of Christ. But then he circles back to this deep and mystical, capital Y, yes, that we actually get to experience in just a moment with the Lord's Supper. When we say, Lord, give us the wings of a dove, he says, yes, you are resurrected with Christ right now. This is what Philippians chapter 3 says. You are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Set your mind on the things above where you are now in the present tense, seated with Christ. That's mystical. That's mysterious. You already are taken away. This is Paul saying, I have already been crucified with Christ. Galatians 2 verse 20. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There is this deep and mysterious, mystical, present tense in which he is answering the prayer for the wings of a dove. Yes, I've given that to you. Your salvation is kept secure. You're in Christ and your soul is not going anywhere. No one can touch your soul. No one can touch your soul. No one can take away the righteousness that's been given to you by Christ, imputed to your account. No one can take it away. You're resurrected now. You have the wings of a dove. I gave them to you. Knowing that, we're able to live here in the meantime. We're able to live here, back to how we sort of started the sermon we're able to live here quiet, sitting quietly in a room by ourselves. Those times in our weeks when we're all by ourselves. Four o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon, late at night on a Thursday night, just whenever. We're able in our loneliest moments, our moments of most turmoil and despair, to be well aware that even in those moments we're seated with Christ in the heavenlies. We're not alone in a room by ourselves. 
This is how God answers that brilliant prayer of the apostles when they come and they say, Lord, teach us to pray. He answers that by teaching us to pray in the way that Psalm 55 suggests for us. Let's pray now. How lonely and actually terrifying it would be to not know you at all, Lord God, to be alone in this vast universe with no knowledge of how we got here, who we are, or where we're going. In that sense, you have never left us alone, for you have revealed yourself to us. And so, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray by deepening our knowledge of you, that our awareness of who you are grows and grows with each year of our lives. Teach us to pray by teaching us about ourselves and who we are. Teach us how to process in healthy ways the turmoil and despair that comes with living in this fallen world. And teach us to pray, our Lord, by giving us the words to form in our own hearts and souls to truly communicate with you. Words that go beyond mere groaning, but articulate truth and reality. So, Lord, thank you so much for the upcoming women's retreat focused on prayer. Teach the women of this church to pray. Teach the men of this church to pray. Teach all of us to pray at that retreat, in each worship, worship service, in our homes, day by day by day. Lord, thank you for the gift of prayer. Thank you for the mystery of prayer. Thank you, most of all, for the mystery of our union with you, Lord Jesus, which we get to celebrate now in the supper. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.